when she stopped, one of her front legs was caught up and it was just dangling. And I thought, oh my goodness, she's broken her leg. You know, this is going to be the end. I'd like to start by paying my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is made, the Pindurup people, and to recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. I pay my respects to them and their culture and honour their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to episode four of My Horse Taught Me That, the podcast all about equine behavior, horse-human relationships and training concepts that not only help you build an amazing relationship with your horse, but also the other animals and people in your life too. I'm your host, Sarah Jackson from Equestrian Balance, and I'm an equine behavior geek. I'm going to teach you how to get the behavior that you want whilst also building the relationship that you want with your horse. I'm super excited to share that doors will be opening soon for my signature online program, Learn to Speak Horse. And because it's really important to me that this course is accessible for everyone, if you know in your bones that this program is the right fit for you and your horse, but it's a stretch financially, then I've got you. I'm offering a full scholarship to the September-October 2023 program to one lucky person. So keep listening because I'll share more details after the episode. The last straw. My first year of teaching was crazy. I'm sure it's pretty crazy for most first-year teachers. you got to figure out a new work environment, learn how to manage a classroom, remember all the kids' names and plan engaging lessons for them, figure out the whole planning and marking after hours thing, turn up on time for every lesson and cope with getting sick all the time. It's a lot. I started out in a rural, isolated high school as the first science teacher they'd had in over five years, which alone just astounds me. But what it meant was that I was a science teacher for kids who'd never done science. And understandably, they were a bit worried about it. A lot of them were scared. Some of them had decided it was too hard or boring or it sucked before they even stepped foot into my classroom. So my mission, my number one goal for those kids for that year was that they were going to learn to love science, that they were going to learn to really enjoy and find it fun to explore and understand about the world that we live in. Now, I decided early on that I was going to do this by doing experiments every single session for all of the kids which was awesome in terms of a strategy. The kids loved it. And I was very quickly able to change their perception of science. But it was exhausting. (laughs) There was no national curriculum at the time. So that gave me complete freedom to teach pretty much whatever I wanted, which was awesome. I loved that freedom. 
but it was a double-edged sword. It meant I had to choose the subjects, develop the content and come up with lesson plans for every lesson for grades five to 10 from scratch. So on top of all of the planning, I also, because I decided to do experiments every session, I had a lot of preparation to do before each class and I had a lot of cleanup to do after each class. So it might not sound a lot, but equipment for 30 kids for four sessions a day adds up. I did not have any free time. On top of this, because no one had been doing science at the school for such a long time, they'd actually removed some of the infrastructure from the science labs, namely all of the fume cupboards. And what I discovered early on was that the chemical store that they had was not safe. <laughs> under, under anyone's book, it was not safe. I can remember opening the door the first day I started and peering in and I had to use a torch because it was completely dark because the light had broken and peering in with my torch and seeing all of these chemical bottles, brown bottles in baskets on the floor stacked on top of one another. So there was baskets upon baskets, probably to waist height with bottles. And we're talking two litre brown bottles of unknown liquid. Most of the bottles were not labelled or the labels had deteriorated to the point that I couldn't figure out what was in them. And of course, I didn't have any fume cabinets, so I couldn't even run the most simple tests to figure out the basic characteristics of some of these chemicals. So on top of all of the normal first year teacher stuff, developing the curriculum for all of the classes and preparing and cleaning up for what felt like a billion experiments, I was also petitioning for money, A, to get someone to help me sort through these chemicals and B, to get a waste company to come and take the majority of them away which was crazy expensive because we were unable to tell what a lot of these chemicals were. It was intense. I was exhausted. If I was awake, I was probably working or doing the bare minimum of care for my poor two horses who also lived at home. I got sick a lot that year. So one Friday night, my partner at the time says to me, let's not bother cooking, let's go out for dinner. Bloody winner, right? It's been a long week. I'm exhausted. Having someone else to cook dinner and clean up sounds fabulous. Awesome. Let's go. We walk into the restaurant, which is pretty busy. There's maybe three tables free. And he turns to me and he says, where do you want to sit? And I look around the room and the exhaustion of the week hits me. I've been making important decisions answering all manner of questions all week and I just couldn't make any more decisions. I don't mind. I say, you choose. No, you choose, he says. I look at him. I can't do it. I say, I cannot make any more decisions. Please, can you just choose? No, he says, laughing. Just tell me where you want to sit. I burst into tears. Here I was, a capable person used to smashing all sorts of goals in my personal and professional life. 
standing in the middle of a crowded restaurant with tears streaming down my face because I just couldn't make the decision about where to sit. Of course, it wasn't just because I couldn't make the decision about where to sit. That was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. It was about all of the other stresses in my life at that time adding up and adding up so that that tiny bit of pressure from my partner to choose where to sit pushed me over the edge of my threshold and I burst into tears. It's that threshold and that process of building up to and going over threshold that's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about what it looks like with our horses and how we can learn to predict and prevent our horses getting to and going over threshold. But what actually is threshold? Well, I like to think of it as the absolute quantity of stress that any individual can cope with at any one time and still function normally. Now, this absolute quantity is going to vary from individual to individual And it's also going to vary from day to day. Now, we know that from our own lives. The things that we can cope with easily one day can really trigger us the next day. When a person goes over threshold, it can look like crying like I did in the restaurant. It can look like a toddler having a meltdown, an angry outburst from someone or someone even throwing something across the room. When a horse goes over threshold, It can look like shying, spinning, bolting, rearing, bucking and pulling back. The process of stresses building up and up until a person or a horse gets pushed over threshold is called trigger stacking. All of the stresses or the triggers stack up and up and up until they reach more than 100% of whatever their threshold is for that day and boom, meltdown. I got my first horse when I was 14 years old, the beautiful off-the-track thoroughbred mare, Misty. I adored her. And I was so excited to start doing all of the things that you got to do when you had your own horse. You know, I've been having lessons for a while, but I really wanted to be able to go out on trail rides. I really wanted to be able to go to pony club. And it was probably the second or third time that we went that my mare experienced a trigger stacking episode not that I knew that that's what it was at that time we were lucky enough at our pony club to have some yards for the horses to stay in during the day and these yards were timber rail yards that was like literally a single pole all the way around a three by three meter yard and in order to get in and out you slide the pole across at the back of the yard the horse would step in you'd slide there pole back and then the yard was then complete so it was probably about lunchtime I think we'd had a couple of lessons that morning so Misty was tied up in her yard with a hay net and my friend went to get the hay to give her horse and she had it in a chaff bag which was located pretty much right in front of where Misty was standing so she picked up this chaff bag and as she picked it up the bag kind of flicked upwards towards Misty's face So Misty raised her head to kind of move away from, you know, this scary plastic bag that sort of had suddenly appeared in front of her face. 
and felt the pressure of the rope, which unfortunately was tied hard to the rail. There was no bailing twine involved. So she felt the pressure of the rope and that was what pushed her over threshold. She pulled back really hard. She ripped that rail off the posts, which caused the rail to kind of fling upwards at her face. And so then she reared up, flipped over backwards, landed on the rail behind her, snapped to that one, and then ran out into the car park of the Pony Club. So she's now galloping with a one and a half metre rope with a three metre pole attached to the end of it that was swinging wildly around. She was tripping over it. She was kicking out at it. And as she got into the car park, she stopped. She was spinning. She was getting tangled in the rope, fighting with the rope. I think it was probably the scariest thing I'd seen at that point in my life with horses. It was terrifying. You know, here's my beautiful horse who no one could approach because this pole is just flying around and, you know, she's getting walloped by it. She's tripping on it. She's kicking at it. She's getting tangled in this rope and she's utterly terrified. And so everybody at the pony club who was anywhere near kind of gravitated towards this car park and we ended up making like a kind of a human ring around the car park but no one could approach her it was too dangerous this this pole was just flying around we just had to wait until she got so tangled in the rope that she couldn't move it probably took about 10 minutes and it was certainly the longest 10 minutes of my 14 years and when she stopped one of her front legs was caught up and it was just dangling and I thought oh my goodness she's broken her leg you know this is going to be the end We were able to approach her safely and get her untangled and obviously call the vet. She didn't have a broken leg, thank goodness. She cut herself up pretty badly and she had some severe bruising, which meant some significant swelling over the next few weeks and a lot of bandaging and medications and things to get her well again. But out of that really traumatic event, I want to look at the triggers that were involved So obviously, you know, my friend lifting up the chaff bag and having that flick up towards her face was a trigger. And then when she pulled back and she felt the hard restriction of the rope, that was the trigger that sent her over threshold and, you know, precipitated this this whole traumatic series of events. But what else was involved? You know, what were the other triggers that got her up to 100% of the stress load that she could cope with that day. Well, I hadn't had her very long. I'd probably had her about six months at that point. So our relationship was pretty new. So that would have been a contributing stressor. Also, the adjustment where I kept her, she was the only horse on the property. And in fact, there was no horses on any neighbouring properties. She couldn't see any other horse. So she was utterly alone which would have been a huge stressor for her. Obviously, I didn't know that at the time. I know that now. And I've talked about it on previous podcasts, how important companionship is for horses, how important having other horses around is for their physical, mental and emotional well-being. So I'm confident that Misty would have had significant stress because of being so alone. And she probably also was sleep-deprived as a result of being alone and not having 
other horses to kind of watch over her while she slept. We needed to travel to get to Pony Club. So she had a float ride and going into a float is a really enclosed space. So that can be quite scary for a lot of horses. So that was probably a trigger. Pony Club was still a pretty new environment. She'd been once or twice before, but it was still fairly new for her. It was a busy environment and she got ridden a bit harder than she normally would. There would be three one-hour lessons during the day. We'd probably had two of them at the point where this happened, but that was still probably a lot harder than I would normally ride her. So she had some increased physical demands on her. So when we add all of those elements up, it was the combination of those things that caused her to go over threshold. So we think about it, probably living alone contributed to be at least 30% of her stress load. We had 15% for the fact that our relationship was still really new and then 10% for the fact that she had to go in the float and another 10% for the fact that it was a new environment and 10% for the fact that it was a busy environment, 10% for those increased physical demands. All of a sudden we're at 85% of threshold. We had 10% for that bag flicking up, we're at 95%. Then when she pulled back and felt that restriction, that's another 10%. And then suddenly we're at 105. We're over threshold and boom, we're into that meltdown. Nowadays, I try very hard to avoid this kind of thing happening. And I do this by firstly, making sure my horse's needs are met. And key to meeting those needs is making sure that my horses have equine companions they have constant access to forage and they have the freedom and the space to move around. So those are lifestyle changes that I can make for my horse that are going to help keep their baseline stress load low. So these days I'm also really aware of the types of things that horses find stressful. So typically horses find new things stressful, so new elements in the environment, perhaps umbrellas or bicycles or dogs or tractors, those kind of things, new elements in the environment that they haven't seen before can be scary and stressful. New environments contain a lot of those new elements. And so taking a horse somewhere where they haven't been before can be quite stressful for them. Being separated from their companions is a big one. Being confined or restricted in their ability to move. So when Misty was tied up, she felt that restriction and that was a big trigger for her. If they're feeling any kind of pain in their body, that is a stressor. Or if they're feeling fear from perhaps a new element in the environment like I've discussed or possibly a training technique or something else that's going on. So the second thing that I want to do is really to train my horses to prepare them to be able to be calm and relaxed in the presence of some of these stresses. So for example, I'm going to train them to be comfortable on the float, separate to actually going anywhere in the float. I'm going to train them to experience a busy environment, separate to actually asking them to do anything in that busy environment. I'm going to train my horse to stand tired and to be comfortable in that situation, separate to needing to do anything whilst they are standing tired. 
Thirdly, I'm going to really pay attention to my horse's body language and behavior. I'm going to look for any signs that they're starting to get stressed and I'm going to be prepared to stop any session or pack up and go home if we're out anywhere if their body language and behavior is telling me that they are approaching threshold and they're starting to get stressed. I'm not going to wait until they go over threshold and we have some kind of disaster to pack up and go home. I want to call it early before that happens. And lastly, as much as possible, I'm going to make sure my horses are pain-free and I'm going to train in ways that don't involve my horse experiencing fear using the techniques that I'm teaching you about in this podcast. Going over threshold isn't fun. It's one of those unpleasant experiences with really strong, unpleasant emotions that's going to build really strong, unpleasant associations that we talked about in episode two. And being part of that picture when our horse goes over threshold is really something we want to avoid because it can make a significant withdrawal from our relationship bank account. In addition to that, when our horses go over threshold, things can get really dangerous really fast for us and for our horses, as we saw with the example from Misty at Pony Club. Being aware of how trigger stacking works and what sorts of things might be triggering for your horse is absolutely key to helping you prevent it from happening. And prevention is the best case outcome when dealing with trigger stacking for you, your horse, and your relationship with your horse. If your horse does go over threshold, obviously manage the situation as safely and quickly as you can to get your horse to a place where they can calm down and relax. But afterwards, it's really important that we have a think back and we we recognize not only what the trigger was that sent them over the edge, over threshold, but especially to have a think about all of the other elements that were going on and the other aspects of your horse's life that could have been stresses that helped you know, push your horse's stress load up and up and up until that last trigger was what sent them over the edge. And then we want to look at that list and think about what are the things that we might be able to change? What are the things that we might be able to train our horse to cope with better? Or what are the management changes that we could make to remove those stresses from the equation? And we want to think about what's going to give us the most bang for our buck, really. What is going to have the most impact on reducing your horse's stress levels overall for the amount of effort that we need to put in to make it happen? For example, if your horse currently doesn't have constant access to forage, that's going to be creating like an underlying stress load across the board, regardless of the situation. So addressing that might reduce your horse's stress load by, I don't know, let's say 30%, which is quite a bit. Compare that to spending the time training your horse to be comfortable with umbrellas opening or people riding bicycles or dogs barking, tractors coming around the corner, those kind of things. There's always going to be something new that you would need to train if you were going to go down that route. 
whilst they're, they're great things to do, there's a lot of time involved in, in doing that training. And a lot of times we end up with our horse being calm around a very specific trigger, but it doesn't necessarily generalize to all of the novel things that they could possibly encounter. And so going down that route can be very time consuming and not a great return on the amount of effort that you want to put in. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing to do. Desensitizing your horse to all sorts of things is a great thing to do and it can be great fun. But in terms of bang for your buck, providing your horse with constant access to forage is going to have a lot more impact on reducing the overall stress load, certainly for a whole lot less effort. So we think about the example with Misty at the Pony Club, by far and away the biggest stressor on her at that time would have been living alone. Now maybe, just maybe, that horrible situation never would have occurred if she had been in a living situation with another companion horse because I'll never know, but it's possible that those stresses wouldn't have built up enough to push her quite over threshold in that situation if she didn't have this kind of base load of stress from living alone and being sleep deprived as a result of that. So my challenge for you is to think of a time when your horse or another horse that you know went over threshold. Think about what was that final trigger that pushed them over the edge and have a real think and see how many other stresses could have been contributing to that situation. Were there other stresses in their general lifestyle that could have contributed to that situation? Or what else was going on in that situation that would have added a stressor or a trigger to that horse's stress load on that day in that particular instance? If it's your horse you're thinking about, ask yourself, what can I change? What's the easiest, most effective way to help my horse reduce their stress load so they've got more bandwidth to cope with all of the other little stresses that are always going to come along with every situation? Now, this is probably not a bad question to ask yourself if you notice that you or someone you love is approaching threshold either. I don't know about you, but I can always tell when I'm starting to approach threshold. You know, when I feel like my fuse is getting a little bit short and I'm not feeling very good inside. I know it's because I've got too many stresses building up, bringing me too close to threshold for really anyone's comfort. And I don't have any amazing solutions for you, I'm sorry to say, other than to try and reduce that stress load a bit. Now I've got a little breathing hack that I use to help me calm down in the moment, but it's really about thinking about, okay, not just what's bugging me right now and what might be about to tip me over the edge, but what are all of the other stresses going on in my life right now? Are my needs met? Am I getting enough sleep? You know, what other decisions am I needing to make? And what other stresses are going on in my life and which of those can I actually do something about and change and take off my plate right now? And similarly, if you notice someone that you care about approaching threshold, it can be really helpful to ask yourself, what can I do to help them reduce their stress load? 
to wrap up, I just want to reiterate some of the key points we've discussed. Firstly, trigger stacking is the term that we use when multiple stresses or triggers stack up and up and up until that horse or human is pushed over threshold. Secondly, threshold is 100% of the amount of stress that an individual can cope with at any one time while still functioning normally. Thirdly, making sure our horses' needs are met so that they have companionship, constant access to forage and space to move around is one of the easiest ways to reduce trigger stacking. This is because not having any one of those things contributes significantly to their overall stress load. So providing them with those things reduces their baseline level of stress right down and gives them more bandwidth to cope with the day-to-day stresses that they're going to experience. And lastly, remember that trigger stacking happens with all animals and people, not just horses. So if you notice that you or someone you know is struggling, ask yourself, how can you help reduce that stress load? Well, it has been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me in what has been episode four of the My Horse Taught Me That podcast. I look forward to coming to your eardrums again soon with episode five, where we are going to talk more about equine behavior, the horse-human relationship, and training concepts that are relevant not only for horses, but also for the other animals and people in our lives. If you've enjoyed this podcast or found the information valuable, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. But more importantly, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with your friends and help me to share it with the world by leaving a five-star rating or review. It really helps other people to find the podcast too. Are you curious to find out more about the Learn to Speak Horse program or how to apply for the scholarship? Of course you are, you beautiful soul. To apply, you just need to answer three simple questions. All the details are outlined on my website. Head to www.equestrianbalance.com.au forward slash services and follow the link to the Learn to Speak Horse program to find out more, apply for the scholarship and get your sweet self on the wait list. Lastly, a big thank you to Music Unlimited for our groovy soundtrack.